They are now in fully fledged anxiety. In that transaction, my parents were naive and uh, they got into trouble um, in terms of the legal agreements that they had made and were held responsible for something. I was probably unemployable by that time. I was uneducated, so I, you know, I hadn't been to university, I didn't have an MBA, I hadn't had any corporate experience. Everything I did was through what I'd learnt. I think it was more because I was something that had been absorbed in and they wanted me out. It was an opportunity for, for us to do, to put everything we had learnt over the last 20 years into place and we completely disrupted the flexible office market. Hi, my name is Jacob Collins Brown and this is UKBF Stories, where we are telling the story of small businesses across the UK and shining a spotlight on their journey. Hi, today I'm with Nikki from Office Space in Town. Hello, Nikki. Hello. Hello, thank you for joining us. And today we are in one of your centres. We are in our oldest centre in Northampton. And what is Office Space in Town? Oh, goodness gracious. Uh, so it's a company. Uh, it is a, a family-owned business. My brother and I and Sarah Singlehurst um, established it in 2009. It is a serviced office business, which in simple terms is a hotel for businesses. Instead of beds, you get desks. Uh, you get receptionists on the front desk to meet and greet your clients. And instead of a bathroom, you get internet, telephony, you get meeting rooms, you get phone booths, you get kitchens, uh, you get uh, communal areas to sit with your colleagues. So it's an all-encompassing business environment. That's what a serviced office is. It's also known now as co-working space, uh, and it has um, you know, it's grown rapidly in the last five years uh, since a company called WeWork yeah. came and uh, disturbed the industry, disrupted the industry, uh, and of course the pandemic has uh, really brought it into its own. But it's been around uh, since my mother formed the first one, in Northampton in this building in 1979. I was going to ask that because I've heard a rumour that your family are sort of groundbreakers in the sort of serviced office space. They were. So my father was a business consultant and worked for an American firm. Uh, he came back from one of, from one of his many uh, travels to the US and said to my mother, there's this amazing concept called business centers, as they were known then, where they provide an office and a secretary and a telephone and business executives can set up their new businesses. And I think we should, we should do it. And they'd inherited this building from my uh, grandfather and it needed too much work doing. It was falling down around their ears. They didn't have any money. So they uh, found the best rooms that didn't have mould crawling out of the corner. They put my mother in the reception area. She had a bank of 10 telephones. 
and uh, she started selling the offices to executives and it just took off. Who would know back in 1979? I find that fascinating because you'd always assume, well, I would and I imagine some others would, that London or the, you know, the big cities are the places where these sort of innovations in industry would happen. But as you just said, we are sat in the building that started that trend, which leads on to, as you said, a booming industry with companies like WeWork, you just mentioned, though, are sort of commonplace. Oh, well, I think, you know, back in 1979, uh, the regions were far stronger in terms of businesses. and Not everything was centralised around London or Birmingham or Manchester. So, you know, business executives worked locally in local firms, uh, commuting wasn't really a thing. You know, they commuted into their local town or their local city. They didn't travel. You lived where you worked. You lived where you worked. And so when uh, these people wanted to set up their own business, and of course, recessions uh, mean that senior executives go out and set up their own businesses as they're made redundant. And, uh, you know, going back to the late 70s um, and recessions we've had since then, you can see that repeating time over time. So we were perfectly placed uh, to provide that space. And it had never been done before. These people had never got a place to go where they could start up a business. So an office like this, which uh, we're in now, uh, we would currently rent this as a five-person office. Back in 1979, this was a one-person office. <laughs> they would sit here with giant desk. giant desk and their giant chair and their filing cabinets and uh, yes. It's very different now. Yeah, I, I remember back in the day, it was all about the managing director's desk and how grand it was and how ex big the chair was. And I think now in our office, everybody has the same chair. Uh, well, they do, but we still, we have a thing which we call a boss desk. So when we lay a room out, we try and always put one desk on its own. It's the same size as everybody else, has the same chair, but it's just one desk that sits on its own just in case somebody still feels that they should be noticed when you go into the office. <laughs> and you touched on it a moment ago, sort of as this, this sort of industry that you're in has sort of really sort of come on leaps and bounds over the sort of last few years. One of the things that everybody's still talking about currently is hybrid working and uh, businesses are breaking moving out of the big buildings they used to have, especially larger corporates, and people are sort of like hot desking more or working more from home. And I, I'd like to say I coined a phrase, sort of a micro-business economy, where a lot of um, the makeup of businesses these days are more micro-small consultant-type businesses compared to being more larger corporates than they were before. The banks we work with, a lot of their staff are contracts, for example. Do you see that continuing? Um, I ask because I've, I've read a piece that you wrote about the evolution of uh, hybrid working and community effectively. With it, when you don't have that community gel, gelling together with your colleagues when you're working from home. God, there was a lot in there. I don't know quite where to start. Um, 
if I can break it down uh, in my head so I don't lose track. So what's hybrid working? Uh, how do I see the future of the workplace maybe? Uh, and also culture. I think they were, the, yeah. if I was going to break it down. So well, hybrid working means different things to different people. Uh, and they, um, about five years ago, there was a forecast that 50% of the population would be uh, digital nomads. Uh, by 2040, 2030. Uh, the pandemic has um, speeded up the whole process of change that was being seen and discussed and, you know, is it or isn't it really going to happen? So hybrid working is very different for lots of different people. Some businesses, hybrid working means everybody works from home and we don't have a centralised office. Uh, everything is online and um, there are many companies I understand in America that have been working like that for some time and they have found a way to build culture uh, and their employees are people that all want to work that way and their businesses generally are technology based so it works well the individuals understand what's needed to have that culture and the other extreme You've got lawyers or uh, accountants, um, training companies, manufacturing companies, where hybrid working, some people working from home just is really challenging. And um, they've got teams that need to be in the office. You know, creative teams, they need some time at home, away from the office that they've found works really well for them to be creative but to drive projects forward, actually being in the same place and um, gelling as a team makes them more productive. And so going back to your question, what is hybrid working? I think it's something that's different for everybody else. I, I think a lot of companies have claimed to have nailed it, the four-day week, we're productive. Uh, but for me, instinctively, I think a lot of people will have made a lot of mistakes by nailing their colours to the mast, is that the saying, very early on, and perhaps not really understanding the long-term impacts to individuals. Yeah. Um, I spoke to somebody close to me, I won't say in what, in, in what respect, and uh, their partner had been remote working since the beginning of the pandemic, and the company had fluctuated in their plans. And they said, we're going to work from home. Uh, and then last year, no, you're going to come back in one day a month. So they all started coming in back one day a month. And then now you're going to come back one day a week. Uh, and this person had really engaged with the remote working. Initially, they had loved it. It fitted their, their life plan. They thought it gave them a big work-life balance. They are now in fully-fledged anxiety because they are looking at the same four walls four days a week. and uh, This is working from home or this is back in the office? Working from home four days a week in the office one day a week. And this is somebody who had fully engaged and said it's the best thing in the world. But two and a half, three years on those things that they thought were good for them have actually damaged them. See, I can, re I can relate to that personally. 
I have got to the point personally now where I really dislike working from home uh, and I like being in the office because I'm somebody who likes to walk the office, be around the team, have these conversations where ideas are born and innovation is made uh, compared to being at home effectively alone uh, in just staring at the same four walls. And also for me personally, you lose, and I said it earlier, the community aspect of being within a team. Because if you're sat there and you just watch the, you know, a film or a, a Dragons, whatever's been on TV recently, and then you're going to the office the next day, say, oh, did you see? And you'll just have a spark that conversation with a colleague. You won't um, like start up a Zoom call or something or Teams call to a colleague to have that sort of conversation. So you you cut out all that natural conversation yeah. you'd normally build up with your colleague. Yeah, I mean, it's really difficult. And you can't, you know, we could talk about this for hours on end, but the, the, the depth of your life, uh, the content in your life becomes smaller when you are restricted uh, to a space. And everybody's situation changes. You might be in a house share, you might be in a relationship, and so you have more content coming to your life from that person. But then you might lose that environment and become very isolated. Or you might suddenly look at this person and go, they have far more content to my life, to their life, than I do. And we're human, we become jealous. We, So I, I, for me, trying to bring it back to hybrid working, I think there are lots of different scenarios. I think a company can say, this is what works for us. And today it works for the teams that you have, but your team is not fixed. It's not set and their situation and the situations are not fixed and are not set. And you will churn your staff and your business will change and develop and grow. And so whatever your decisions today, I don't think they will necessarily be the right decisions for your business next week, next month, next year. And so flexibility, and in all areas of your business now through um, hybrid working is paramount. And I'm not sure that that doesn't put such pressure on a business to take responsibility for so much of it in terms of the individuals. And as humans, we don't, we know what we want, but we don't actually always know what's good for us. And so I think perhaps Businesses need to decide what's good for their employees and try and educate them as to why that's good for them. And that might not actually be what they want. Interesting. Is that? No, that's really interesting. No, that's a very, uh, and the, a lot of that I can relate to within our own business and my own personal sort of working environment. And it's what we see a lot of conversation about within the UK business forums community itself because so many business owners, particularly small business owners that make up UKBF, um, are going through these same questions and uncertainty about, you know, impact on my business, impact on my staff, dealing with these sort of, and dealing with mental health issues for the staff, which are things that are surfacing now that didn't surface 15, 20 years ago. So it's a very different environment. It is. And, you know, without you know, the other side of the coin is if you don't utilize office space wherever you live, um, 
what are the unintended consequences of that? And without being too, you know, so small businesses, convenience stores, restaurants, coffee shops, all of those things, all of those companies find it harder. They're not going to be there if you don't use them, or there will be less of them. Now, that might be right. There may be far too many. Um, because we've all been splashing the cash because life has been so great for the last 15, 20 years. We all know life is getting harder at the moment. We've all got less money. Um, so not going to the office impacts all of those uh, smaller businesses that provide services to the offices. Who owns those office buildings? Pension funds. Massive companies. You, so there are the unintended consequences of making decisions about where we want to work that we think just goes down to the business that we're working for. And they're like, well, if they don't have to pay to an office, they can pay me more money. Um, I don't have to go into the office. I can be at home. But actually, you know, where's your pension coming from? Where do the big corporates invest their money? They invest it on the stock market. It's all connected. It's a tangled web. It is a really, really tangled web. And, you know, just because it's good for me today, you need to be, I think, slightly uh, more considered about your decisions. Okay. I'd like to um, talk about your personal journey now, where how you came to be running Office Space in Town as you are now, because it wasn't a straight line. Oh, I say so. <laughs> well, sadly, unlike you, I don't have incredible skills in technology and I wouldn't call myself an entrepreneur either. I, uh, I have been given opportunities and had to follow through in areas that I never expected to. Uh, so how did I get here? So my mother as a, and father, as I said at the beginning, converted this business in nine, this building in 1979 into uh, what was called a business center. They grew the business and they took leases on buildings. Uh, and um, they, their final one, they opened in Leicester, Bedford, they opened another one in Northampton, and then they opened one in Coventry. And uh, that caused them a few problems, uh, put the company at risk, so they uh, sold the business. Uh, to uh, when you say cause a few problems, is this overstretching? Yeah, they uh, they got they got overstretched, and uh, the Coventry Council had an incubation centre where they were meant to take startup businesses for two years and then release them. But because they hit the recession, they didn't want to release them, and so uh, our centre in Coventry didn't get uh, the fee the feeder the, the the clients coming through. Um, anyway, overstretched. Coventry is a different place now. It's, it's a thriving, <laughs> thriving city. So the business was sold. Um, how, did, how did I end up to it? So in the, uh, my mother went to work for the new owners. Uh, they decided actually they wanted to focus on covered markets. So my mother and father bought back the business. And um, in that transaction, my parents were naive and uh, they got into trouble um, in terms of the legal agreements that they had made and were held responsible for something that they were advised to do by their 
legal advisors, and so they had to step down as directors. You can't fight the DTI. And uh, I was working in the business. Uh, there was an MD and an FD. And uh, so my parents stepped down and I was operations director. And the MD at the time didn't feel that he, he, he didn't want to take on the responsibility. He wanted the security of something else. So he took one of our new contracts that was in the pipeline and went to work for that business, which left me at 25 uh, with my FD running 12 centres around the UK. That's quite a, that's quite a substantial um, operation for it, such a young age. It was, and I didn't really know anything about anything. I knew... Uh, I knew how to read a P&L, just about. I knew how to chase debtors. I knew how to run a building, because that's what I'd been doing. But I didn't know anything about business at all. How to, and and uh, I was good with people. That was all I really had at that time. Um, and then um, in the September of that year, so that all happened in the January, February, March, and then in the September, the F my FD died, uh, sadly, of cancer. So I was left all alone. <laughs> That's all I can say. Uh, and I, I, um, I got through it. I had amazing people around me. Life wasn't as complicated then as it is now. Uh, and I soon realized that running a business which was based across the UK, was not possible with the structure that I had. You know, you need area managers and you need this, and you know. And actually, you've got to keep your business close to you. Um, somebody said to me, if, if you can't get to members of your team within an hour, then they're too far away. And, you know, that's slightly different now with, with transport and everything. But, um, yeah, it was too much. So I looked at the business and... Uh, Taking leases was too risky. We, we didn't have any leases by that point. Uh, I closed some centres that we had leases, got rid of all of those, and did management contracts. Um, we were the first company to do management contracts in the UK. Now, as of today, nearly every operator is chasing a management contract rather than a lease. And what's the difference between lease management contract? How does that change the way... So there are three types of model uh, in, in our industry. So there's own your own buildings, which is what we now do. We own our own buildings. There is taking a lease. So when you want to put your company in a building, you generally sign a legal agreement for five years or 10 years. That's what a lease is. And you're committed and it has rent reviews every five years that generally only go upwards. <laughs> I don't think they ever go downwards. Uh, and you're responsible for um, certain parts of maintaining the building. And then in our business, uh, a management agreement is where you have somebody who owns the building. They see the value of having um, a serviced office or a flex space uh, product in their building. 
but they don't have the infrastructure to run it themselves. So they get a company, a, a management company to come in and manage their space on their behalf. And they may bring their own brand with them and their own staff. Uh, it may be based on a fixed fee. It might be based on a peppercorn rent, which is like a small level of income. And then they share the profit above that. So there's lots of different ways, but it's low risk to the operator. Yeah. A, a lease is high risk. I can see why when you say everybody's chasing the management contracts then, why that's yeah. different. So you had a pandemic where operators who had leases had no, no, no or little income, but they still had a lease liability. Yeah. So they then were reliant on the uh, landlord to give them rent free or push their, their lease out. If you're on a management agreement, both you and the landlord are in it together. And so you, the, la the landlord knows you need to survive. So it's much easier to find an agreement. Uh, or as we are, we own our building. So we're beholden to nobody except the bank, obviously. Um, and um, so you know, our risk is very, very low. So whilst I've got you here, are you running your own or have a keen interest in small business? Then UKBF is here for you. Visit ukbf.co.uk and become part of our vibrant community to meet other like-minded business owners and tap into a wealth of expertise and experience to help your business thrive. Now, back to the story. So at the age of 25, you got through that year um, learned a hell of a lot, I imagine, a sort of baptism of fire. And then you started to consolidate the business. Yes. What happened next? <sighs> well, a lot of it I've blanked out my mind. I can't even remember what I learned and how I learned it. But I knew that I couldn't take leases. Uh, they were too expensive and they put me at risk uh, when... when um, the economy failed, you know, I still had to pay my rent. So I had to find a way forward. Uh, so uh, I came up with the management concept. So how do you grow a business? You need landlords. I didn't have any money. That was the other problem. The business had very little money. Uh, so I needed a way to find, I needed to find a way to grow. You've just skipped over something really quickly then. You said you came up with a management concept and we've just had a conversation about what management concept is yes so have you just completely skimmed over that you created that concept that's now <laughs> widely used in the industry um i well, okay so where did that come from i think uh the management concept came out of failing leases so uh during this time when i uh took over the business and um was trying to climb out of the hole that I was, trying to learn. I was having to negotiate with landlords who I had leases with, who I couldn't afford to pay the rent to. And they weren't going to find new tenants, so they didn't really want empty buildings. So we had to find uh, something that worked for them and that worked for me. And so this concept of a management agreement uh, came out of those negotiations. And whilst I was... Uh, trying to find ways of how do you grow a business with no money, 
bearing in mind the business I was in, it was all I knew, and I couldn't afford to let it go, because once you have something and it's, it's your only way forward, you're like, I can't let this go. So the management agreement concept seemed like a really good idea. It was a win-win. I didn't have to put money in. Uh, I, my investment into the deal was my knowledge, and the landlord's investment was their building. And you know, they got money out, they got tenants and income, and they got their building looked after, and the profile of the building improved. And so if at some point they did want to sell it, it would be far more valuable. And I got an income. So it's a win-win. Why would nobody want to do that? And I, I could see lots of, in my mind, of course, you know, of course, why wouldn't anyone want to do it? There'd be hundreds of people who want to do it. So uh, I decided with my new FD to do a business plan, wrote a letter and uh, bought a database and sat in my garden with my husband, putting lots of these into envelopes. I think we must have sent out about 3,000 across the United Kingdom, 3,000. This was when, you know, mail shots were the way to go. You know, there was no, well, there was the internet. That's a different story. That's a different with story. With the whole beep, 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 beep. <laughs> um, and I think, you know, again, I was really young and naive and I didn't know anything and my FD was okay, but he wasn't a personality and so he was not the wingman that I needed. Um, so, but between us, we did the best that we could. Um, and um, at this point, my brother had sold his business and he was like, let me come and help you. And I was like, yes, please, come and help me. Uh, so all that ended up with us negotiating with a company called Quintain Estates and Development, who were uh, a very dynamic entrepreneurial property company. Um, and they were like, yep, we like the idea. A very charismatic CEO. Uh, and we fell in love with them. And I think they fell in love with us. And they were like, yep, you know, we'll, we'll, here's some cash. But, you, you know, you need to pay your staff more. You need to buy them cars. You, you need to do that. And I was like, what did I know? I was like, well, you, you know, you're the people that made loads of money. I should follow your instructions. So I did all of that. Uh, and they said, look, we'll buy buildings and we'll do management agreements with you. Sounds fine. It was brilliant. I, I was like, how can this go wrong? So this was in uh, 1999, I think. And uh, they never bought any buildings. And, uh, you know, we got a couple of management agreements that we negotiated, but it was a lot harder to find them than I thought it was going to be. And we... Your overheads were massive as well. Um, I, um, I'd spent money where I didn't need to because I'd followed their instructions. And what did I know? So I learned more, I think, in this period of time than I had anywhere else because I, I learned what not to do. And I also learned that just because other people are successful doesn't mean they do it right and they have all the answers. Uh, so um, 
but my brother and I learned a lot. We uh, had a, a good, we had a great FD by that point uh, as well. And uh, we decided that we needed to um, find some new shareholders. And they, so that required us to be slightly, um, what's the word? I'm not sure. Uh, but uh, so we went strategic. strategic yes so they didn't believe that we would uh, do what we said we were going to do and so we went into pre-packed administration and we came out the other side with new shareholders and I've got a note um, it sold to MWB in 2005 so this is this is the end of uh, Quintain that was what we did so we saw we we sold to MWB. So um, Quintain were out, MWB were in. And they were a very successful service office company by that time. And, and how was that period with MWB? How, what, what was different then? <laughs> well, um, I was probably unemployable by that time. I was uneducated, so I, you know, I hadn't been to university, I didn't have an MBA, I hadn't had any corporate experience. Everything I did was through what I had learnt from talking to other people, I had learnt through making mistakes, um, and um, I was thrown into a corporate environment. My brother became a consultant, he went off and did other things. I stayed in the business for a year and then we parted ways. Just picking up on the comment, unemployable, this is something that I hear a lot of when I speak to people who have run their own businesses for a while or um, are currently running their own businesses. They say they're unemployable. Why would you say you're unemployable? Well, you were unemployable. Well, I can't answer for other people saying whether they were unemployable. I think uh, I, was, I, I was an MD of a business and so I was responsible for all of those things. But when you put an MD of a small business, where they're responsible for everything, into a, into a larger business where their responsibility is restricted, uh, and also they have had a business with its own culture, and they're then put into a different business with a different culture, and they're not able to influence that, there are so many things that just grate continuously um, and it's frustrating and and also you you're not as you know what you know but you don't really know what you don't know and larger corporations have worked all those things out and they have this is my experience, you know, they have more systems in place and they have a bigger marketing department and they have better understandings of things. And so it, it just didn't work. But for me also was uh, the biggest, you know, I was also, apart from the HR director, I was the only female senior management, female in the senior management team. And I definitely wasn't in the senior management team. Ah, interesting. The um, two things now, because I, I had another question. You've just popped another one in. So the first one, when you uh, 
it's quite common when people sell businesses. So you've gone through the process of selling a business and it's the entrepreneur, the business founder, the person who's selling will always generally be there for a short period of time during yes. the transition and then they're out. And sometimes that's by mutual agreement, sometimes it's by pushing, sometimes they just want to get out. Yeah. The, the theory is that large corporates are running a process and it's that process. And that's what I'm picking up from what yeah. you're saying is the, when you're a, a dynamic business founder who's used to just being able to just control the ship, um, not necessarily, I'm not saying control it dictatorial, no. but literally you can make a difference. Yes, you choose the direction of the ship, yeah. The, it's, would you agree with that is my question. Oh, absolutely. I don't blame anyone in the business as to why it didn't work for me being in it. And I think that's exactly why you, know, you become kind of unemployable because... As an entrepreneur, you have a vision and you want to drive the business there and um, you can't do that. Um, the bit that just popped into my head is you said just there, you was part of the senior team, the only woman was part of the senior team, but you didn't feel that you was part of the senior well, team. And, but uh, the HR director was, and she was very definitely part of the senior, senior management team and she was very influential. And I... I said that and I thought, mm, that I don't want that to be mi misconstrued. I think it was more because I was something that had been absorbed in and they wanted me out. And as part of the purchase, they had not negotiated a fixed term. It was an open. So they, they wanted me out. Right. And rather than have a conversation with me, they just made it really difficult and obvious. And so we all got to the right place in the end. Uh, uh, and I think an HR director role historically was probably the first senior female roles that there were. I think operationally, definitely in property, um, it was more of a man's thing, but I never felt that it was because I was a woman. And that wouldn't have bothered me anyway. That, that wouldn't have stopped me fighting for it. So you came out of there. Yay! And tell me about Offices Please. Oh, pink Offices Please. So my, um, so the co-founder the co of Office Space in Town with Giles and myself is Sarah Singlehurst. And Sarah and I had worked together uh, at City Executive Centres. So when I left MWB, we were like, wow. Let's go be agents. Let's go do it from the other side. How hard can it be? <laughs> um, and she is the most dynamic individual you'll ever meet. She is a sphere of energy uh, and a saleswoman, an extraordinary saleswoman. She is currently our sales director um, in Office Space in Town as well as co-founder. So we're like, what are we going to do? Uh, let's set up an agency. Offices, please. We're women. So we thought we'd go pink and black. It's an online business. It's about people. Uh, and so we set that up in 2007. 
and we had a wonderful SEO advisor called Alfred Eccles, who we're currently working with again now, which is so exciting. He was incredible. And so our website, we didn't pay for any advertising like our competitors. It, everything we got was organic search. So it was really low cost. It was the cost of the website. Um, and you know, we sit and wrote content in our evenings instead of watching Coronation Street. And Sarah was an amazing saleswoman, and I'm a process-driven person. I was, or I thought I was, but I knew I had to follow a process. And uh, so we sold, we sold service offices to companies that wanted flexible office space. It, and it was great, and we, uh, it was just reaching the peak. And we had an amazing investor as well who put a lot of money into it, uh, Richard Sunley, and he was a huge supporter of us right up until the very end. And, uh, and then the financial crisis hit. And we got struck down. It was, I'd never heard of groupthink. Have you heard of groupthink? No. Um, so it was like everybody stopped searching for office space on the internet on the same day. It was... It just disappeared overnight. Uh, and uh, we were too small and, uh, and too reliant on organic search um, to, to keep going. Uh, and so in 2009, we closed the business. Um, but you still had household support built yes. as May. We both, uh, Sarah has two daughters, uh, she was uh, a single mum, uh, I had my husband, uh, obviously he did work as well, and we had our young son, and so Sarah and I started cleaning offices. Yeah, you, you do what you I ruined my hands, <laughs> they're still suffering. But that's a sheer determination, you literally, um, sort of strength of character is that somebody who you know does what you do you you take a hit but you still you do whatever it takes we had to we had debts to pay we had mortgages to pay you know it, it, you can't be choosy and you, you you have to you have to find a way to pay the bills there's always i think if you can if you're fit you can knock on a door uh, you don't have to have office skills, and you just have to be polite. You have to be able to communicate and be prepared to do anything. You can find find a job, yeah. no. find several jobs if you can't find one job that provides you with enough. And so that's what we did. Yeah. Uh, and um, um, you know, waited for something else to come along, an opportunity, an idea. And what did come along? My brother! <laughs> My brother is amazing. I am his biggest fan. Make me cry thinking about him, really. Um, so he had been doing some property investment. Uh, and he, I, I, you know, my brain and my memory is a bit fuddled, so I'm not sure which way things go, which exact order. But he came to Sarah and I and said, I've been approached uh, to run a serviced office 
in Hemel Hempstead that's in receivership. So to run it for the receivers until they can sell it. And uh, they've come to us, you know, we were the biggest management company, we, that's what we did. Um, do you two fancy doing it? Sarah like, oh yes, please. <laughs> we'll be there tomorrow. Uh, so Sarah and I went into Hemel Hempstead and we took over this failing serviced office to manage on behalf of um, the receivers. And then they needed another one in uh, Aylesbury. So we started doing that as well. By this time, uh, our warranties with MWB had fallen away. So we could re-enter the market. So that had been a stopper as well. And Giles uh, had decided, you know, management agreements were a great idea, but really we need to go back. We need to own our buildings. Um, so he came up with a 20-year plan. We'll do 10 management deals, which will give us an inc enough income to buy one building. And so over 20 years, we'd get to own 10 buildings. This was his plan. Uh, and he got us a management contract at Euston Tower. And that was in, we opened that in May 2009 as office space in town. And that was the beginning of where we are today. I love the fact you like mentioned that and the amount of times I travel to Euston and see Euston Tower and that I'm sitting with the lady whose company has managed that building the, um, is phenomenal. Well, that's very sweet of you. We had the, the top three floors, they had the best views over London uh, and it was an opportunity for, for us to do to put everything we had learned over the last 20 years into place. And we completely disrupted the flexible office market with that when we, when we opened in Houston. We, we turned it upside down, nobody had done it. It was absolutely cutting edge. It was very exciting. And that, I think, does that bring us to office space in town? So that brings us really to office space in town and then our growth out of Euston Tower, uh, and yes, brings us up to Office Space in Town, 2009. And I think, I feel that there's a little bit of a spoiler in what you just said a moment ago for the next question, but I'll ask it anyway, is where is Office Space in Town going? What is the future? <sighs> future is orange, apparently. <laughs> um, our strategy is still to buy buildings. So uh, we, um, we opened Houston in 2009 and then Giles, uh, through his networking, his connections uh, and our reputation as individuals, he raised finance uh, with um, a fund called Foreign Partners and we bought uh, four buildings with them. That was our uh, Liverpool Street building, which we opened in 2009. 15 and then St. Paul's in 2016, uh, Waterloo and then Monument. So they're quite significant locations. Yeah, very significant and you, you go to our website if you want to go and see what they look like. I won't take up your time talking about it but they are um, stunning buildings and going back to what we said about Houston, we, we put in 
so much breakout space. So for clients to step out of their offices, to be able to roam the building with internet so they could be completely mobile in our office environment, beautiful kitchens, free tea and coffee, table tennis tables, chess boards, uh, pool, uh, free meeting rooms, uh, little, little beanbag rooms. It, it, it hadn't been done before and we did it. And then every new building we opened just uh, grew that concept. And each one, rather than being a corporate environment uh, like our, our competitors, where every building was fitted out exactly the same, we designed our space to reflect the local business environment that we were in. So each of our business, our buildings is different. Uh, and so we grew and uh, we now have those four locations. We have one in Blackfriars as well, which is the Happiness Building. That's our most recent building. So the Happiness Building. The Happiness Building. Why is it the Happiness Building? It was built, it was designed around uh, the concepts that made um, all of us in, our business, in the business smile. So there are a lot of pets, not real ones. There is poetry, there is a giant smiling smarty, there's a hot air balloon, there, is, um, there are giant giraffes and butterflies, it, there's vibrant colours. I'm wanting to visit. There, there's a Lego room. <laughs> now I definitely want to visit. <laughs> it, so it, that's why it's the happiness building. It, it, everything in there is somebody's idea, somebody, something that makes somebody happy. It, it's very random, but beautiful. Jacob, we're going to Blackfriars. Feel free. Come and, come and experience it. The, so to, I'm picking up very clear from there that these are London locations. They are. So you wanted to know what our strategy was. So we are uh, London centric. Yeah. Um, got to be within a five minute walk of a, of a main transport hub. We want to buy buildings. That is our uh, has been our strategy and continues to be our strategy. We are and have always been open to doing management contracts for businesses, landlords that um, appreciate the value of flexible office space. So we're, we're very open to doing that. And um, this year, in fact, we bought out uh, the shareholder of those four original, we've churned a few times, but the mo our last shareholder, um, we just structured a deal uh, and have bought them out. So we are now hugely in debt, but own our own buildings. <laughs> going into a recession. I, think, I was gonna say, how does... Um, Yay! <laughs> um, that must be exhilarating, but also nerve Right. Exhilarating and terrifying in equal measures. Um, I, but you know what? Opportunities come but once in a lifetime, I think somebody said, and I should probably know who that is. And if it comes your way, you have to take it because there is nothing worse 
than looking back and regretting an opportunity not taken. I, th I would much rather look back and go, that was, a, that was awful, that was horrendous, but we all lived to fight another day, than look back and go, I wish I'd done that. Uh, in the happiness building, what was your contribution? I, I had a life coach a few years ago, an amazing woman, uh, and uh, she said to me, when somebody says to you, what do you do? People always answer, oh, I'm an MD, or I'm, a, I'm an SEO, whatever, whatever, whatever it is that you do, I'm an accountant. And she said, you know, is that what you do? Does your job define you? Is that who you are? And, and I thought about it and I was like, oh my God. You know, I don't, that is not who I am and I don't go to work to be an MD. And so uh, she made me think about it and go, so, you know, what is it that you do? And so I, my answer now when people say, what do you do, um, is I make people smile and I make people happy because I think that is my purpose. So going back to your question about what was my input to the happiness building, it was a poem by Spike Milligan, which actually my mother uh, had recently reminded me of. And if I can just read the first, uh, the first bit. Smile by Spike Milligan. Smiling is infectious. You catch it like the flu. When someone smiled at me today, I started smiling too. And, and I think that's kind of how I live my life. And that is how I try and engage with everybody that I engage with. That is a fantastic note to, fit, to end on. But I have to ask one more question because it's a tradition of what we ask at the end of it. And I feel like that is such a closing, like, fantastic statement. But I think I know the answer now as well. How would you like to be remembered? As the person that made people happy. Yeah, I pick up that vibe. That's fantastic. I've really enjoyed the conversation. Thank you for putting me in the box with all those amazing people that you've interviewed today. The, no, the you underestimate or you, you're underselling yourself here. <laughs> the, uh, it's a brilliant story. I've really, it's fascinating hearing how you got to where you are. Fascinating that you've shaped the industry you work with as, within and you make people smile. Thank you. Thank you for that. Thank you for your time. Thank you for listening. Remember to like, share and subscribe to help spread the stories of small businesses across the UK. Have you got a story to share? Reach out to us on ukbf.co.uk and you never know, you could be the next UKBF story.